燃え上がれガンダムと Weekly Suit Gundam, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here on our road towards the third anniversary、uh, episode of this podcast where we have a couple of little gaps we need to fill up. So for today's episode, we are taking a look at two things we have already seen before, but we've never done dedicated podcasts on. And that is the Mobile Suit Gundam Thunderbolt. Uh, anime, both sort of seasons or whatever of the online animation that were edited into the movies、um, December Sky and Bandit, Flyer, or Bandit Flower,、um, and then also the other、uh, ONA original net animation of the period around 2017,、um, which was also edited into a little kind of short film, which is Mobile Suit Gundam Twilight Axis. So we're going to be taking a look at both of those on today's podcast.、Um, one of those things is very good, one of those things is Exists. Oh, I'm pure. I actually like both of these things. So, really, yeah. Twilight Axis is vestigial, I think, is probably how I would describe <laughs> Twilight Axis's existence.、Um, that is it's, a... it's interesting in concept.、Um, and I'm sure probably the novels that it's based on are very good, but it is a 600 pages of a novel series adapted into a 25 minute animated short. Yes. Well, we'll talk about that. And, you know, Thunderbolt is very good, but I have to say, let's, let's put our cards on the table here, Sean. Yes. Thunderbolt is an unfinished anime.、They've, they did two seasons、uh-huh. of the ONA into two movies. Those are based on volumes one through seven of a manga by Yasuo Otagaki.、Um, and that manga has been ongoing. It's at 20 volumes now.、Um, Otagaki says he's near completing it, but we're not sure when that's going to end. So it is very unfinished. I have also read, I have not read the whole manga, but I've read all the manga up through where the, the anime ends and then a little beyond that. Have you ever read the Thunderbolt manga? I have not read it in detail. I did, so when we did, because we talked about Thunderbolt briefly, I think it would have been episode six of the podcast. It was、yes. every episode that you, you went fucking Gundam crazy after we finished the first sort of、yes. chunk of this show where we watched the original series. You just said, I'm just going to go insane and watch all these OVAs and stuff in the Universal Century.、Um, and, and that was also not that long after, relatively speaking, Bandit Flower had come out. Because I don't think I had actually seen Bandit Flower because、um, that came out in 2017.、Um, and so I watched that, and, and that just kind of stops.、Um, and so I did start reading the manga a little bit. I remember reading the beginning sections. And feeling like,、mm, I don't know, because I had just rewatched the anime. I was like, I don't know if I want to reread all that story, even if there is a lot of stuff that wasn't,、uh, that was kind of skipped over.、Um, and then I just kind of skipped to where the anime version left off and started reading from there. But it, like, I kind of wasn't really hooked on it fully. So it's like, I liked what I read of the manga, but I think because I had just rewatched the anime, it made reading the manga like 
hard because I didn't really want to just reread all the story I had just seen animated, but also it was hard to skip to the stuff that had been where it would continue on because so much stuff was skipped in how it was adapted. So I think I just like should have waited longer before I started to try to read it. Yeah, I will say right now to anyone interested in the manga, you have to read the whole thing. You could not start at volume eight mm -hmm. because that's where the anime leaves off. Just way too much is cut. You would not understand sort of the syntax of the manga. It is very out there. It is a very different kind of manga than anything you you might have read before. Um, you do have to go through the whole thing. I am a huge fan of the manga. The manga Gundam Thunderbolt is one of my favorite Gundam things. If I were to like tier rank it, it would be in one of the top tiers. I think it is a phenomenal work of art. The anime, I loved it the first time I saw it. Revisiting it now after mm -hmm. having... Like, I've read that stretch of the manga multiple times. I really love it. Um, it's a very troubled adaptation, I would say. Like, it does some things just phenomenally well. Like, the music, which is all a thing that is called for in the manga, but obviously you have to invent for the anime. And they do that phenomenally well. Some of the animation is very nice. Um, but it is fundamentally an anime that is moving through seven supersized volumes of manga because they're 250 page volumes not 200 is going through seven volumes of manga in about two and a half hours and that is an impossible task and you especially if you've read the manga there is just so much missing it kind of feels like i don't know maybe like ralph bakshi's lord of the rings or something of just like mm -hmm. this is moving at a clip and with kind of an unevenness that for its flashes of brilliance is hard to fully enjoy so I'm of kind of two minds on the anime, um, but I'll have a lot to say kind of in comparison because there's some interesting stuff if you've only seen the anime uh, to talk about here. But yeah, that is kind of my cards on the table for Gundam Thunderbolt. Yeah, and I think like, again, I didn't read, I didn't get like hooked into the manga. Um, and like, I think there was some stuff about the manga from what I remember. And again, this is like three years ago, so I don't remember uh, a lot about it, but it, it didn't totally grab me. Um, and I think, like, the, the, rewatching the Thunderbolt OVAs or ONAs or whatever, however you want to label these, um, is one of the rare times on this podcast that I do think my estimation of them has decreased on rewatch. Um, because I think the thing with specifically the anime is I think you could take Gundam Thunderbolt and you could just rename it as Cool Gundam because that's what this is. This is like Cool Gundam, right? It's Gundam with like the jazz and it's got all like the craziness and like the really fiddly mechanical details of the mecha and like really cool action and it's just like kind of crazy. Um, particularly uh, the first one, December Sky, which I think is quite a bit better to me than Bandit Flower. Um, and, and that stuff is like very cool. But it does, I think it struggles with trying to find some of what might be like like the deeper character or theme stuff that's in the manga um, or like whatever it is that like would give it, I think, a little bit more kind of heft rather than this more surface level, very enjoyable, like experiential thing of just like kind of getting into the flow of it and enjoying it. And I found on rewatch um, that is, is like, especially with Bandit Flower, but I think even with December Sky, I think I just like kind of wish that it was a different thing either that it was just a tv show that more sort of would be a closer adaptation to the manga or it went like even more extreme in how it adapted it and cut a bunch of stuff and like streamlined it a lot and made it like honestly i kind of wish that december sky was a silent movie effectively like with music and like sound effects but i kind of think it just shouldn't have dialogue 
I think when it's just communicating purely through visual storytelling and the music and the vibes, I think it's like incredible. It's so good. And then when characters start talking, I kind of tune out a little bit because the dialogue is super clump clunky. It's very like, let's have a couple of people like say in fairly plain terms directly what the themes of the big action scene we just watched were that were communicated through action and language or like through visual language and through music and, and that kind of stuff. And I don't need characters to sort of like in kind of soap opera-y dialogue um, sort of just say that to me. And so I do find myself on rewatching Thunderbolt feeling like I think it's kind of stuck in a weird place of that there's a version of it I can see that just really accentuates what it does extremely well, which is the visuals and the like vibe and the tone and the jazz and all that stuff and really pushing that to 11 or something that is just a more traditional Gundam thing that would be a closer adaptation of the manga. Yeah, I mean, I basically agree with all of that. And here's the thing, though. I don't know how you would do a close adaptation of the manga. I have never read a manga that I think is harder to adapt. Like, it, what Thunderbolt is doing is incredibly unique. And what's funny is when you say, like, where is the heft coming from? I think that manga is a very hefty manga. And it's not necessarily because there's a ton of plot stuff that the anime doesn't get to. There is to a degree, but a lot of it is like certain sort of plot mechanics and things like that. And sometimes some of that does rob the anime of certain things. Like there is a part in Bandit Flower, it's I think episode six of the ONA overall, where um, you have this whole adventure sort of in Antarctica in the ice. Mm -hmm. um, and it's that is an entire volume, 250 pages of the manga condensed into 20 minutes. And it's not necessarily that they've... And they have obviously cut a bunch to get it down to 20 minutes, but they've kept like a lot of the action core. And most of that volume is action. But there is a certain like level of sort of like tactical awareness going on. There is a lot of stylistic experimentation. Most of that volume is told backwards in reverse time. Um, there's all sorts of things going on that add to a certain level of both stylistic. And then I also think an overall experiential narrative heft where you do understand a lot of little things that add up to getting a better sense of the stakes and why characters make choices they make. Like one good example there is that EO Fleming comes out of that episode looking like a fucking idiot in the anime because he just gets the Atlas wrecked for no reason. And in the manga, it is characterized as a desperate enough situation that you understand all the choices made. So there's things like that. Um, but overall, like, I just, I do want to start by describing the manga because it is really unique. Like, it is the most, uh, we've talked before about, like, compression versus, like, decompression in uh -huh. comics before. Um, and that, you know, the uh, manga of Gundam The Origin is a very decompressed telling of Gundam because it takes a lot of panels to do simple actions because it's really, like, putting you in all of it. Um, Thunderbolt is even more decompressed. It is the most like decompressed manga you'll ever read. It is mostly about uh, the sort of kinetic action, and it does that through very big, often full-page panels, very detailed art, um, very big sweeping images, a lot of splash pages and two-page spreads, um, and extending action over many, many pages. But its overall goal is very much one of immersion and sort of being an experiential product. The entire, I think, idea of Thunderbolt is to throw you into the middle of some very high-stakes Gundam action. And I think, to me, the heft of Thunderbolt, more than anything, comes from being in these scenarios with the characters 
and seeing how it unfolds in such an aesthetically powerful way because it has absolutely stunning art um, that the heft really does come from that sense of immersion in this world and the experience of a lot of the horror that comes out of it. It is a much darker and more violent Gundam than you typically get in animes. Um, it is much more brutal. It is also much more like realistic in sort of how it does a lot of the fiddly mobile suit stuff, which you hinted at before, Sean. Mm -hmm. um, and within that, it does have a fairly developed story and characters, and almost all of the character nuance is taken out in the anime. Um, EO Fleming being the one who suffers the most. EO basically comes across like, I would say, the bad guy in Thunderbolt, the anime. And I don't think that's his characterization in the manga uh, at all, really. Um, so there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, but the manga is like, it's it's very out there stylistically. The Battle of the Thunderbolt Sector, which is what sort of the last episode of December Sky depicts, is so cut down. That is like almost two full volumes of the manga. And it is, a lot of it isn't even following our main characters. It's jumping around to different places on the battlefield and getting sort of small battle stories. Um, and there's all sorts of stuff like that. They do a similar thing at the Battle of Abaoku. Um, and so it, it is this like intensely experiential and immersive manga um, that often takes sort of big stylistic swings. For one, just the art itself. It is a manga that like is... This is one thing that reads wrong to me about the anime, and I know this would never happen. I think if you were to do Thunderbolt right, Thunderbolt right, it is a hard anime to adapt in color because it is a manga that uses black and white so specifically and memorably. It does not feel like a manga that would be written in color if that's how manga were done. It is just like a very black and white thing, often very high contrast. Like if you've read Frank Miller's Sin City, it does a lot of similar techniques to that in just having very stark blacks and whites and using almost like negative space to imply shapes and stuff like that. And then they do some very experimental sort of narrative turns. Like I said, volume six, The Adventure in the Snow, the first half of that volume or so is told in backwards time, revealing sort of how that situation arises. Um, and there's all sorts of things they sort of do like that. So Thunderbolt, I don't know what the right format would be for an adaptation. In terms of like getting all the story in there, it would have to be a TV show. I don't know if a TV show would have the time or budget or like expenditure of effort to do what the manga is doing. As a movie, you would maybe have to cram too much in. It clearly doesn't work, I don't think, as this like 15-minute-per-episode ONA thing. So it's a really far-out-there manga, and it leads to an anime adaptation that I think in any form would be a little vestigial because it is so playing with sort of certain manga characteristics that are very hard to adapt. Yeah, I mean, although I'll say as somebody who like hasn't read the manga in depth um, and kind of bounced off of it a little bit, I think, like, for me, December Sky, like, I think it, it gets a lot of, I think, the, the general strokes of that and finds ways to translate some of that stuff and in, in, in make it work for animation of, like, while, you know, the, the manga does great stuff with black and white in contrast, I think this is some of the most gorgeous looking use of color in any um, oh, yeah, animated sure. Gundam thing, you know, so it's like, and, and obviously you have, like, them being able to actually do the music and um the way that all that is constructed visually and edited together um like i think especially again december sky which just gets to be its own kind of like story um because you know bandit flower is just weird because it feels like a bunch of disconnected stuff that is leads up to a reveal that means nothing 
for like the story that has been told up to that point because it feels like it's set up for further stories rather than something to reflect on the story that has been told up till that point um, which, which is, is what, what it is it is yeah exactly yeah. so it's just like a weird thing to adapt in that format but december sky i think is like fairly successful the only problem is that like it's got all of these kinds of weird character moments that to me feel too soap opera-y um, that I kind of wish were like, I wish some of the character stuff was more grounded, I think overall. Like some of the stuff with like the captain who eventually then she's the one who gets brainwashed in the second story or whatever in Bandit Flower. Like, Claudia a lot of stuff, here, yeah. Yeah, Claudia. I think a lot of the stuff with that character just is weird um, and just feels like so underbaked or underdeveloped and just... And, and I don't know, the like her fucking doing drugs or whatever in her office and EO coming in and slapping her. It's too it's too melodramatic for me for like the rest of what the series is doing. I mean, it's similar to the like engineer lady on uh, the, the Xeon side with Daryl um, and particularly in Bandit Flower, her becoming catatonic or uh, not catatonic, but her losing her memory and reducing to the state of a child psychologically. Like some of that stuff is like, too out there for me and i think it does that a bit too much with like the human drama that maybe if i had read the like manga all the way through in context those moments might work better like embedded in a like that storytelling but certainly for like the anime i think that is to me the thing that kind of stands out the most is like getting in the way of of hitting the flow in the vibe and the tone of what thunderbolt does because when you get into the flow of things with thunderbolt it's like so ecstatic and then you kind of stop for these very kind of clumsy soap opera y melodramatic character moments that don't, to me, jive with the rest of what the animation is doing. I largely agree with that. And I do think December Sky is obviously the more successful of these two. Like, the thing is, I would still, I just think Gundam fans should definitely watch December Sky. I don't know if I would recommend watching Bandit Flower because it is so, it'll just frustrate you because it's unfinished. Mm -hmm. Um, but December Sky has a very like, and I think the movie adaptation, which tacks on a scene from episode five of the ONA from season two to sort of like give a little like, like yes. overall conclusion to this is really smart because December Sky zeroes in very clearly on Daryl more than it does on EO. And I think that's the right call if you're doing sort of a movie length version of those volumes of the manga. Um, and it basically tells this story about a guy who starts with two limbs lost, eventually sacrifices his final limb so he can pilot this psycho Zaku, does come out ahead, and then is suddenly in this nightmare scenario where he no longer has the psycho Zaku and cannot pilot right anymore. And that is like this almost horrific Lovecraftian like Twilight Zone moment it ends on. Um, and I think that's a very good structure for December Sky. And obviously, when this show is like, fully going and it has the jazz or the pop music and it is doing these big imaginative like full bore action sequences and it is just purely kinesthetic it is transcendent it is a very very good version of that you know um but i do think like yeah it because of like how the character stuff is integrated and i think some of this is the pace it has to move at because it is so much crammed into so little this show always has to be kind of moving at top speed, even through mm -hmm. the kind of smaller human moments. And so I think it does make things feel dissonant in a way a manga doesn't, because the mangaka can kind of... I mean, one, the reader determines how fast they read, but also the mangaka can, like, speed up and slow down a little more specifically. And I think o o uh, Otagaki is very good at that in the manga. Um, 
And then there's just there's some vestigial things in the movie that I think it's weird they kept in. Like they do the little beat about all the kids coming in to pilot the GMs. Uh-huh. And they mostly ignore that, which is weird because that is like the biggest thing EO gets in the manga in that stretch is he fucking hates that and is absolutely like, and all of them are like struck with guilt over this. And it's, there is a whole series of chapters about those kids getting decimated on the battlefield that's like very powerful um, in a way that Gundam often is when it deals with child soldiers. And it's mostly excised to the point where it's just a weird sort of like interlude they do in the movie. And I don't know why it's there. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, when Thunderbolt is on as an anime, it's on in a and doing a thing that no other Gundam has quite reached for in the pure level of like kinesthesis and synesthetic, like synesthetic qualities it's going for. Um, but I do think it's an it's still it's an uh, inevitably awkward adaptation. Yeah. And I think that's what leads me to feel like I wish they, they just went more bold with the adaptation to just kind of yeah. said, hey, this is going to end up being something so different from the manga by necessity. Let's just lean into that and kind of just make it totally its kind of own thing and its own version of the same kind of germ of a story. But before we get deeper, I do want to touch a couple of other things about the general background. I think we've kind of hit on some of the broad background stuff. Um, but obviously it's based on the manga written by Yasuo Odagaki, who started writing it in 2012. I think one thing that was interesting, I was digging around on the Japanese Wikipedia, kind of curious about where it started. And, and Odagaki was actually approached directly by one of the editors for the magazine Big Comic Superior, which is where it is published in, which is a seinen uh, uh, magazine. So for people, are, I think people are generally familiar with Shonen, right? Like Shonen Jump and like Shonen Anime. Um, but seinen is another sort of category, meaning basically like young, like adult. Well, I'll just say like adult probably is like the, the easiest translation of that. Um, specifically adult male. Um, so it's like aimed at an older audience. So that's where you get the like drugs. That's where you get the violence um, and that kind of stuff. So it's very specifically not a shonen style uh, manga. That's also why, you know, all the characters get to be actual adults instead of being adolescents, because it's like, you know, not to say that you can never have a shonen manga thing that has uh, adults as the main characters, but it's fairly uncommon. It's much easier if you want to do a seinen thing and you want to have adult characters, you can pitch that. And Odagaki Yasuo has been a manga who's worked on a bunch of stuff since the 90s, and most of it all is uh, in the kind of seinen uh, demographic, generally speaking. And one of the main things, one of the main reasons he was approached is that his biggest other series is a series called Moonlight Mile, um, which serialized, generally speaking, from the early 2000s to about 2012. Um, and it went through, from what I understand, it went through multiple story arcs and kind of like ended on a major story arc and kind of stopped. Um, and then he went off to work on Thunderbolt and he's actually started doing Moonlight Mile up again, which I think is one of the things indicating that he's getting ready to sort of uh, finish Thunderbolt Gundam because he's going back to Moonlight Mile. But Moonlight Mile, I haven't read any of it, but from what I understand about it is it is um, a very kind of, it's that's where some like the finicky, like mecha type stuff comes from Thunderbolt. Um, it is set basically in a, the contemporary world and it's focused on space travel type stuff, but actually realistic space travel. So it's like space shuttles, the International Space Station, that kind of stuff. And it's about these two characters um, wanted to become astronauts in like their journey through that process involved with like the nitty gritty details of the mechanics of a lot of that stuff. Um, and from my understanding, it also is like a lot more comedic overall um, than something like Thunderbolt is. 
but he worked on that for a long time. Then he was approached to see if he wanted to do something in the kind of Gundam universe. And in uh, Odagaki is a fan of Gundam stuff, but he's not like a super mega fan. And so a lot of his approach with Thunderball actually is like, and I think you can feel this, is that he's not sort of beholden to the specifics of like Universal Century Gundam. And in fact, Sunrise doesn't consider Thunderbolt to be exactly set in UC Gundam with the rest of it. It is set in like a sort of parallel UC Gundam that gives Odagaki like the space to be able to do kind of whatever the fuck he wants, which makes sense because all the mecha in Thunderbolt is like way too advanced and is like different in a lot of ways than what you see in traditional UC Gundam. So it's kind of in this sort of like UC if, I forget what the specific phrasing they used for it was, um, but it's in this kind of own sort of adjacent timeline that obviously is broadly Universal Century Gundam, but anything he that he wants to deviate from in general he can and is like sort of given the ability to tell his own story. And so he's specifically not trying to just sort of emulate stuff from the rest of the Gundam franchise, but wants to sort of bring his own um, sort of style into it. And, and that's where you, where it, from everything I saw in interviews I read, like he really likes the kind of like nitty gritty, the like the specific detail of it um, and thinking through the ways of that these like mecha would actually work and some of his ideas of the way that boosters work and the way that like they use shields and stuff is all quite different than what you saw in um, normal UC Gundam. That kind of really comes from Ogaki's approach um, to a lot of this stuff. And then uh, in terms of the animations we get, right, in 2015, they start doing these uh, ONAs, original net animations. These are not like Gundam Build Divers Rerise, which were just aired on the Gundam YouTube channel um, for free. These were like basically pay-per-view kind of things like on demand uh, through a paid online service. So you would buy individual episodes as they aired. Um, and then eventually once the four episodes were finished they then edited them together into a movie and added some like additional material to them and showed them as a movie um and then they did this a similar thing in 2017 with four new episodes that then once those were finished they edited those together into a movie which is bandit flower and showed those in the movie theater and then some special screenings of bandit flower also had the movie version of Twilight Axis, and that is how the movie version of Twilight Axis was shown. Um, so when we get to that, like it's very connected because the Thunderbolt project and the Twilight Axis project are kind of like sister projects in some ways in terms of like the format in which they are created for Sunrise. Um, and then in terms of the staff working on the Thunderbolt anime, the main guy is uh, Ko Matsuo, who is both the sort of primary script writer and the director for the series. Um, obviously, as script writer, he's adapting the material for the manga, but as we've noted, that is like a very heavy load in terms of how you're trying to adapt that. And Ko Matsuo has been around for a long time. He's worked on a bunch of stuff. He actually did a lot of work with um, Satoshi Kon on some of Satoshi Kon's movies, so he worked um, on Perfect Blue. Let me find the, what the specific credit was, because on Perfect Blue, he was a unit director, and on Millennium Actress, he was also a uh, unit director and then he's directed a bunch of other anime series unfortunately I haven't seen a lot of the stuff he's directed but it's all stuff those names I recognize that I know people generally like stuff like Valve Rave the Liberator which is a mecha show stuff like Yozakura Quartet uh, Rosen Maiden he's done um, and one of the few things he's done that I have watched is a very good show called uh, Natsuki Rendezvous. Very different from Thunderbolt, other than it's also a seinen thing, but it's like a very mature kind of romance story about a widow and like this guy who she starts a relationship with, but the guy can see the ghost of her deceased husband. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good show from what I remember. It's been like eight years or something since I watched it. 
but point being that like Komatsu is like a very experienced person in the industry as an animator, storyboard artist, director, um, having worked with a bunch of great people on great franchises. Um, and he's like the primary creative figure in terms of the animated versions of Gundam Thunderball. Yeah. Um, it is a talented crew and arguably as talented as all of them are, we got to talk about who they got to do the music, Sean. Yes. Yes. Yeah, because the may, I mean, there's obviously a lot of people who work on the music because they have to, in the manga, obviously one of the big like selling points is that uh, EO Fleming on the Federation side is always listening to jazz in the manga. It's actual real world jazz that is often brought up. It's John Coltrane a lot. Um, he's in, in one scene, he is listening to Rhapsody in Blue. Um, and, and so it's kind of a mix of jazz and blues that he listens to, but his main thing he likes is free jazz. And then, uh, Daryl in, uh, Daryl Lawrence on the Xeon side is always listening to basically oldies and love songs. And those are all fictional songs in the manga that the mangaka has written lyrics for that kind of play over scenes as a commentary on them. And then they invent sort of pop songs and oldies for the, the anime. But the main composer on the anime is Nariyoshi Kikuchi, who was uh, is probably best known to people as a member. He is one of the saxophonists in the band Seatbelts that did the score to Cowboy Bebop, possibly the best TV score of all time. So, um, and obviously has done a lot of other stuff, including a very acclaimed score for the loop in the third anime, The Woman Called Fujiko Mine, and all sorts of stuff. And just, uh, they brought in a real, like, jazz guy to do the jazz, and it shows. Yeah, and the thing with Kikuchi is that his main career is not anime-associated, right? Like, obviously, like, in the anime world, he would be best known for Fujikamine and Cowboy Bebop, or, and then also, obviously, he's known for Thunderball. But he's, it's not like Yoko Kano, who was the composer for Cowboy Bebop, who, like, I mean, she's worked on lots of stuff, but a huge section of her career is um, being a composer for anime. And so a lot of, like, the composers we talk about are people who they're like kind of one of their main jobs is working on other anime series. And for Kikuchi, his main thing is that he's a musician, right? So he plays, you know, the saxophone. He's an incredibly talented saxophonist, but he's also a music producer, right? So he's worked with Sony Music for um, like 10 years at this point um, and has helped release and worked on a bunch of albums, over 20 albums through Sony Music. Um, uh, one thing interesting here that I also see is that his brother, um, Hideyuki Kikuchi is the writer of Vampire Hunter D, which I did not know that until I was looking at this thing I'm reading right now. That is um, fascinating. Uh, yeah. You wouldn't have known that without looking at it because Kikuchi is uh, a fairly common last name, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so Nariyoshi Kikuchi, it, 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 it makes sense that they got someone who's not like strictly centered in the anime world because the, a thing super important for Thunderbolt is that it doesn't sound like anime music. It sounds like jazz and it sounds like sort of like 1950s kind of pop ballad stuff, um, which is a lot of the kind of stuff that Daryl um, listens to. And so getting someone who's more kind of in that world and less in the anime music world um, is really, really important. And that's one of the best parts of the Thunderbolt anime experience is just how incredible the music is. Um, all like all like the sort of like instrumental music and kind of incidental music that plays as well as like the major jazz tracks all that stuff is amazing and all the original uh, pop songs they do that are like so stylistically on point they they I think pretty obviously use like major songs as kind of like references that they that the songs are, like resemble but they're always very still unique like I think there there's a really smart ear for kind of how to center it in recognizable pop songs of the period um but you're but you're still making something that's totally original so it kind of captures the spirit 
of um, something like for me the big one is the song that like the really really big song that plays in December's Sky that Daryl uh, listens to um, that I'm blanking on the name of it right now is it I'm but, Your Baby White uh, Yes Girl uh, there's a, there's several of these <laughs> the, uh, the Girl Dreaming in Me I think that's the, girl the one I'm thinking okay. of um, and that's the one that it's very similar to The End of the World um, which is a God, I'm blanking all the names of this stuff. But it's a song that plays in like the Fallout games. It's probably where people have heard of it. It's like, why does the sun go on shining? That song. Like, right. it's very similar to that to evoke the same mood because it's very much a song that's about the same things and is evoking the same mood as that song. But it is different enough that it's still clearly its own song. And that's like a thing that is like very, I imagine, very tricky as a musician. Um, it's one of the things that gives all the music is so authentic. Um, while not actually using music from that period um, that it's referencing. And that is, to me, like one of the great joys of watching Thunderbolt, um, is that in the musical sense, it is totally unlike any anime you've watched because it is fusing these two kind of musical styles and doing so much with it and incorporating both into how it is telling its story. Yeah. Skeeter Davis is the yes. singer you're thinking of, uh, you. of the song The End of the World. Yes. No, um, Thunderbolt has one of the best scores in the history of Gundam. Like, it is in that upper tier, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and it is one of the most unique things about it. I mean, one of the things I was doing... So I do uh, enjoy jazz in my real life. I don't listen to as much of it as I sometimes want to because jazz is something that... So first, first thing I'll say about music, just to back up even, I'm someone who is fairly synesthetic. Um, when I hear music, I see things... Um, this is often talked about when people talk about with synesthesia that like you see colors with music. Mm -hmm. It's not so much colors for me as it's it's even more sort of abstract or even sometimes more solid. It's very sensory for me. But like I'm not someone who can necessarily just neutrally listen to music while I am working on like writing or something that is sort of active because I, I it fills my head too much. And jazz, re I have to be like very active with jazz because mm -hmm. it is like very participatory for me like um i totally understand what eo fleming says when he says free jazz is perfect for the thunderbolt sector because that's the kind of thing i would need to be doing if i'm doing something while listening to jazz is not actually flying a mobile suit through this thunderbolt sector i cannot do that for multiple reasons um but like you know playing a complicated video game or something like that like that's very active like a shooter i could actually do that too and it would be actually fairly helpful because it fires so many synapses um so that is so I but I definitely do and I've been trying over the years to get more into learning about, you know, my jazz knowledge. But part of broadening my horizons yesterday was just and in the last couple of days preparing for this podcast, you know, uh, E.O. Fleming specifically is talking about free jazz, which is a sort of avant-garde jazz styling from the late 50s into the 60s and 70s that intersects with sort of the electronic jazz movement at a certain point. Um but is a more improvisational um, and avant-garde form of jazz. And I was sort of listening to a couple of the major sort of albums in that um, vein the other day while I was kind of preparing for this podcast, including the sort of Holy Text, which is Ascension by John Coltrane, the album Free Jazz, which is where the name comes from, by Ornette Coleman, which is about 10 years earlier. These are amazing recordings that are like definitely a little hard to get into, but have so much in them. And one of the things that just blows me the fuck away about the Thunderbolt soundtrack, which I will say is probably the Gundam soundtrack I have listened to most of all of them over the years, is that it's not quite full avant-garde free jazz, because you couldn't do that for, like, score for a TV show. Um, because, like, the two albums I just named are unbroken 40-minute recordings. You can't right. do that for episodes that are 15 minutes long. 
But when you listen to the Thunderbolt main theme or the song Groovy Duel from the second season, they're so much closer to like the John Coltrane real stuff than you would ever expect from score written for an anime. Yeah. It's really incredible stuff. It does not feel like the music was limited by the you know feeling of like this has to be done in a certain way so we can animate to it. It is this very freewheeling, improvisational, open kind of music that then gets layered over this very kind of chaotic but organized visual style that creates a very sort of synesthetic cacophony. And it is when it's firing on all cylinders that makes this anime so unique. Yeah, and and I'm also I'm not like super um like deeply familiar with jazz. Like it's a thing I've sort of like skimmed over. I think because I think I have I don't have as deep of like the synesthesia thing, but I have the same thing. Like something like that that is like the thing with jazz and particularly this kind of jazz is that it is so like active a piece of music. It's not the kind of thing of like a pop song where it's like okay. You, you you hear maybe 30 seconds of the pop of the an average pop song and you have heard that entire song and now it is just going to kind of do the same thing maybe it'll do a key change if it wants to get fancy you know maybe it'll do something weird have a weird bridge in the middle um but like that's the kind of music that's very easy to just listen to totally passively but jazz is is so active a kind of music that it's a hard thing to just kind of listen to on its own unless it's more the kind of like cafe you know kind of thing um that's not really like what this kind of jazz is um but yeah like i think the thing with thunderbolt in that regard is even with not having like a deep knowledge certainly of it like it so like clears way above something like a smell test for like the authenticity of the kind of music it is that for most stuff when you have a like jazz influence soundtrack it's not like jazz jazz it's got jazzy elements to it right it's got like the saxophone is in there like the instrumentation will be that um, oftentimes, like, I think, like, when people think about jazz music in a soundtrack that's, like, in a movie, it usually comes across as more like it's, like, a big band kind of thing, like yes. a 1920s kind of big band piece, um, whereas this is, like, fucking hardcore, you stick it in your veins, like, jazz-ass jazz, and that's just a thing that you don't really get much um, as a, a soundtrack for media, partially because I think the kind of music it is makes it weird sometimes to use as a soundtrack and you almost feel that in places with thunderbolt and but it feels like thunderbolt takes that so much as the inspiration of how it constructs its action sequences and the visuals that it gives the visuals a in the way it's edited and directed a very different feel as well that matches what the music is doing and that is like that stuff is my favorite stuff about this anime like and that's why i think one of the reasons December Sky, I think, is quite a bit better than Bandit Flowers because it's so much more concentrated, that stuff. And I wish it was just more of that because if it was that, like, all the time, it would be fucking great. It would be exhausting, but it would be amazing. Um, and, and when it kind of moves away from that, like, space... Um, like, I want this to be like Gundam Fantasia or something is what I really want Thunderbolt to be. And when it moves yes. away from that and people start talking, I'm like, shut the fuck up. Go back to the good shit. Um, because the good shit is so good. Yeah. No, I think that's totally true. I mean, I, I made a tweet last night from when we recorded this that Groovy Duel, which is the big jazz piece in Bandit Flower in the second season, yes, might to me, like, again, I would have to go, like, meditate on a mountain for three days before I said whether I think this is actually true or not, but if you force me to make a Gundam hot take, one that I would feel like I could defend comfortably and passionately, Groovy Duel might be the best piece of music in the history of Gundam, 
it is it, at the very least it's in contention for that title. Sure. It yeah. is an absolutely incredible piece of jazz. It is this six minute uh, like unbelievable recording, and in the context of the show, it is a real diegetic song that Eo and uh, Bianca are bonding over and even play together. And they're talking about it as like one of the great recordings of all time in like the modern history of space jazz. I like that they're like even inventing musicians uh -huh. of the universal century to like bring the history up a little bit more. Um, and all of that is very creative. And I don't think there's ever been a Gundam song like that where the diegesis claims something so big that not only does it have to p pass the smell test, it has to be great. And yeah. Groovy Duel comfortably passes all of those tests, you know? Yeah, no, 100%. It's it's a thing where, like, th what the show is calling for is such a very high bar for that music to clear. It, like, reminds me of a thing that you definitely get sometimes um, in movies and TV shows. Oftentimes when it's an adaptation of, like, a comic book. Because comic books and manga love doing things with music in the story, even though they obviously can't do anything right. musically, actually, in terms of your senses. Um, it's like a very common thing and I always find it interesting when it happens but one thing you get is like having a made up song that's in a comic book or a novel or something that is supposed to be like oh this song is amazing and it like changed this person's life or it's or like they you know the story is about someone who's a musician and then like this is the song they composed that like changed the world and you sometimes get that kind of thing and then when it's adapted to a movie or TV show they have to actually make the song and it's like I mean, that song's fine, but it's not the way that it's described or it like you imagine it in the thing where all you have to do is imagine what it sounds like. And Groovy Duel is one where it's like, no, like absolutely this. Yes, I totally believe that this would be a piece of music that people in this world who are way into jazz would hold up as like an incredible legendary song um and and that's a thing i don't sure i've ever seen that something that like is sets up that kind of expectation musically for a diegetic song that is an original song and then actually like surpasses what those expectations are yeah it's it's just a tremendous thing and i think to a lesser extent but still true you get that effect with daryl's music i think uh -huh. You, at the very least, you understand this as music that feels like it is a part of his character and is something he would want to listen to. And I think December Sky in particular builds some just incredible sequences around his music. Like the big song that plays in, I think, the marquee moment of December Sky is at the end where you have... Because this they this is something they take from the manga, but sort of the fluid integration of sort of flashbacks and imagined images and stuff like that. And there's this big moment where Eo is coming in for the kill in his full armor Gundam, and Daryl is in the Cyclozaku. He's passed out, and then you have this flashback to him kissing a uh, scientist lady, who I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name as well, and I've read the manga multiple times. Uh, maybe that says something. Um, <laughs> she's not in the manga a ton, because she gets fucked up. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, and they have that moment where she slides the scrunchie over his prosthetic, and then they kiss, and then the kiss becomes the spark of static electricity, and then it travels across the entire sector, wakes him up, and he fires. And that is all scored to one of the big pop songs that you were talking about earlier. And it is, I think, one of the most like perfect transcendent moments in the history of Gundam. Yeah, no, it, it's amazing because of the way it's integrating the visual elements and the music. Like, one thing also to note on Thunderbolt in terms of, like, its production and stuff is that this is also the first Gundam thing that was made for, like, 4K. Um, yeah. So there exist 4K Blu-rays versions of this. Like, that's not the version I watched. 
Um, but I think you can see why it would want like 4K in like HDR stuff because it is definitely like it is playing in that space. Um, I think it's like very like it's so interested in using color um, as like a huge part of its storytelling. One thing I love is that it does things that call back to first Gundam. Um, I think Bandit Flower does it a little bit more, but it also happens in December Sky where they will like just like explode the entire background in like an abstract sequence of colors to like visually um, and sensorily represent what is happening with the characters which is a thing that old anime does all the time where all of a sudden like someone gets surprised and the entire background becomes this weird pink image of like weird strange geometric shapes and stuff um, and uh, that's another thing that Thunderbolt starts doing a lot of um, where it starts sort of integrating kind of symbolic or abstract imagery into the backgrounds in some of the elements of what happens visually um, that matches, I think, a lot of what it's also doing with the music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm looking at the review of the 4K Blu-ray of uh, December Sky on Amazon Japan, and people are saying, uh, in, in the rough translation I'm looking at, that it's very beautiful. And yeah, I don't believe any of these were probably produced at 4K resolution, because that's very rare for anime, but at least in an expanded color space, I would totally believe with the HDR, because yeah. the colors are very... And I will say, the manga does have some really beautiful color pages, and the manga printings, are all, they're always re reprinted. There's no like pure black and white version of it, which is nice. Um, and they do emulate in those heightened moments you're talking about, Sean, the kinds of color schemes Otagaki uses in the color pages, because he goes for a very expressionistic color style in those moments, and they're often pulling on the kinds of colors that are used in those color spreads, and it's uh, it's a very cool effect, absolutely. Yeah, because like his Otagaki's main reference point, even if he's not trying to sort of like be obsessive about it or whatever, is First Gundam and the movies based on First Gundam. Like that's like very much what I got from the interviews is like that's what Gundam kind of is to him. Yeah. Um, and so it makes sense that he's sort of like stylistically calling back to that kind of like late seventies era anime and some of the techniques they do. Um, then that then appropriately gets reflected in the anime version, um, which yeah. is fun. No, and and definitely, you know, whatever other problems I have with the anime, and I definitely do have them. It's an imperfect product. I don't want to downplay like the significance of what they're doing musically and aesthetically here, because it is like it's not just unique for Gundam; it's unique for TV and it's unique for mm -hmm. anime. Like the only score that I think is kind of comparable to what Thunderbolt is going for is like a Cowboy Bebop, or yeah. or probably the Fujiko Mine show, which I've only seen a little bit of. Um, but like you know, Cowboy Bebop is a big jazz score that is like really fucking going for it and pulls it off. And then that show is also stylistically adventurous enough to really integrate it. Um, but you know, uh, as Netflix learned the hard way, there's only one cowboy bebop <laughs> and it is yes. hard to do again. And it is hard to do with big mecha battles in space. And you know, this is something sunrise has turned out to be pretty good at a couple of times. Uh, but it is definitely a very unique and, and incredibly ambitious lift what they're going for here. Yeah. I think like, you know because talking about thunderbolt i think the thing that stands out to me is like i think at least with the animation stuff there's not a lot of like big character moments that stand out aside from some of like daryl's stuff but there are like shots and see in visual sequences that to me and like action that like is like burned into my head and i think yeah. that's one of the reasons why re-watching it it didn't get the kind of bump that most shows have gotten right because like most of the time when for weekly suit gundam we've rewatched a show generally speaking i've liked it more upon rewatching it there's only been a couple of times i think and usually it's something like gundam wing where i'm like eh, i didn't like it that much originally and then like rewatching it 
only highlights the problems or like g gundam honestly had that effect to me of like rewatching it was like oh no like the the issues with it stands out to me more um i think it's because like it's easy to forget some of like the stuff that connects the things that stand out in your memory but the stuff that stands out to my memory in thunderbolt is so striking i think my favorite sequence in um in certainly in december sky or like i guess in thunderbolt in general is there's this really incredible first person shot from the perspective yes. of Izaku's camera of EO is in his full armor Gundam and he is like zooming around the battlefield and they do the thing with the music where he's broadcasting his music right but because it's we have the Minovsky particle stuff going on when he's further away it's just like garbled static and then as it gets closer it becomes more and more like music and you can hear what it is um in the way that he like is zipping about the battlefield and kind of going behind a piece of debris and then you lose sight of him and then he comes out of like an unexpected direction um while the zaku is kind of flailing around and trying to shoot wildly i think is the best sequence i have ever seen bar none in a mecha thing at capturing i think like what that experience is meant to be for the pilot of a like sort of grunt mobile suit fighting an ace pilot in a Gundam it's the thing where like you can imagine that that is exactly the experience that people at like Solomon or Abawaku had when they were trying to shoot Amuro it's just like where the fuck did he go what does this guy do? oh he dodged that and how did he get over there and you're like looking around wildly as this thing is like shooting around and jetting around and like accelerating and de-accelerating and like um shocking in weird patterns and then disappearing from your vision and then coming up and killing you um, but having all of that with the kind of push and pull of the jazz as he gets closer and closer and it becomes more and more like audible uh, music as opposed to just garbled static. Um, and I think particularly because the jazz is so aggressive, right? And like the beat is so intense that it kind of like feels almost static-like in the way of how aggressive and intense the beat is that it has this like there's always noise going on when the music is playing. Like, that, to me, is just an absolutely, like, virtuosic sequence of animation that I think about a lot. And it's, like, the thing that I... Th when I think about Thunderbolt, like, that is honestly the main thing I think about is, like, that one, like, long, uninterrupted single shot from the perspective of that Zaku's camera. You're absolutely right. That is an incredible piece of virtuosity. I, I completely agree. Um, you know, and, and I actually think that is also something I want to transition into talking about here is the mobile suits themselves... Uh -huh. are incredible and this is something that is is right out of the manga otagaki has i think a unique skill for drawing in the style of like universal century original like first gundam mecha he has a lot of love for a lot of the mobile suits you and i love sean a lot of yeah. the first gundam mobile suits because they're all over the place um you know there is like there is more act guy stuff in thunderbolt oh, yeah. Then and, and I'm talking about even beyond where the anime has gone, than you ever get in actual Gundam. He loves those things. But also he adds on to them in ways that one is always doing little things to like make them a little bit more quote-unquote realistic militarily or at least a little bit more detailed. Like one mm -hmm. of the things he draws that usually is not drawn is like sort of like the mesh fillers that you would have on limbs and stuff because you wouldn't want pieces rubbing up against each other. It would cause friction and it would break the mobile suit, right? Um, yeah. So there's all sorts of stuff like that. But then also, he just goes absolutely fucking crazy and does stuff like the full armor Gundam that has four shields and has extra arms. The Psychozaku just has two giant rockets on the back for propulsion. When you get to the Atlas Gundam, I think that is one of the best conceptions of yeah. a mobile suit in the whole series. Um, there's And it just continues on through the manga. Um, 
one of my favorite things about the Thunderbolt books is just on the back cover, you have a bunch of like just drawings of the mobile suits. And I always just love looking at those. Um, when I was in Japan, I did pick up volume four in Japanese. And I specifically grabbed this one because it had an extra book that is just a little book of mobile suit illustrations by Otagaki. And it is so fun to see all of his designs and some of the like storyboards and stuff like that. Um, because he is an incredible artist of mobile suits. And I think the anime represents them very, very well. Yeah, like it's a thing that in doing my research and kind of the background of Thunderbolt is that came up is that there are quite a few of those like kind of like the the, the mecca of Thunderbolt like books like their own little booklets and stuff that have come out over the years um, that is yeah. just like getting into the nitty gritty details um, because yeah it's one of my favorite things about Thunderbolt is I think if you are like a nerd for specifically the mecha side of Gundam this is some of the best there is um, both in the manga sense because even like you know, I didn't read the whole manga, but what I read of the manga, that was one of the things that I remember really standing out to me is the way that the mecha are drawn. But then also within animation, the Thunderbolt anime also is like some of the best mecha animation you're going to get, particularly if you're looking for like like on the digital side of things as opposed to the old school kind of hand-drawn stuff. Um, and yeah, I love how extra the mobile suit stuff is, but in a way that makes sense. Like it makes perfect sense to me, particularly if you're a mobile suit in space, that you would have these sort of like extra little arms um, that are very like like the actual kind of little robotic arms that we have in real world spacecraft and and stuff like that for these exact purposes because in space you don't need to apply much force to move something so you can have what is like a fairly flimsy little appendage but would still be able to manipulate a very large heavy object like their giant shields so it's because it's not just the full armor Gundam. When you get to stuff like the fight in Abaku, you see just like gems and normal mobile suits that also have like that kind of like the shield apparatus so that it has its hands free, but is also able to move these big shields around almost like panels around it with these little kind of robot arms. Um, and there's a lot of stuff like that, like the massive propellant on the Psychozaku that all makes sense. Like it's very extra. It's very big. Um, and it's kind of ridiculous uh, in a certain sense, but it all makes sense and it's all thought through. Um, and that's like true of all of the mecha stuff, like the, the weird Ock guy that Daryl has in Bandit Flower that has the one arm that opens up into like a sensor to try to get around some of the Minovsky particle stuff. Like there's all of these like fascinating details that seem fully thought through. And then I am 100% also with you that like the Atlas Gundam is one of the best Gundam designs. It's so cool. I, I've always really loved the kind of like new Gundam-esque like really deep navy blue with yellow color scheme it has um, but particularly the idea of it being an underwater Gundam and part of that being it's got it's like boosters that can like combine together into being almost this like sled that he gets on like it's like a submarine Gundam um, and the railgun which railguns are always very cool um, they're all things that you've never seen happen in any other Gundam thing and ideas for designs that don't exist anywhere else that are unique within the world of Gundam, but that fit perfectly within Gundam and specifically this like slightly altered version of Universal Century where there's like just a couple of details that and like ideas that he has that are different from the original Universal Century kind of designs that you just like adjust it slightly, but it makes sense and combines with all like the majority of the aesthetic stuff that he does borrow from core universal century meshes very well with like the new elements that he adds on to it yeah absolutely i mean i'm just flipping through my illustration booklet and i'm on the page where you have the fucking goof 
with the big mm-hmm. like uh, rocket pack on the or like the almost helicopter pack on the back yes. and uh just seeing otagaki draw the goof in full color like that oh my god because it's the best mobile suit ever just drawn beautifully with these like extra pieces that are really cool um that does make it into the anime adaptation there's a good scene with that in the in the final episode of bandit flower uh yeah it's just it's it's basically like fucking porn for mobile suit fans at a certain point there's so much good stuff in there right 100 percent. yeah it's just it's all the little lines like it, it looks like when you when someone buys a like perfect grade gunpla and puts every single sticker on and like every little thing and you're like how can this like one thing have this amount of detail on it um you know like that's what like the thunderbolt anime has is every time you look at the mobile suits it's like oh this looks like the like super crazy high detailed versions that have like all the serial codes and all that shit all over them but actually animated which is something you never get in the anime stuff because it's like that's a huge amount of detail to draw on something that you have to draw multiple times to get it to move and the fact that it's 2d animation right like they're not leaning on 3d cg stuff to do the like the heavy lifting on their mobile suit animation like something like uh the origin which is fine um for the origin but it's cool to see this level of detail and nuance in something that is still being animated in a traditional 2d fashion yeah i agree and you know this is the joy of reading the manga the manga is something that I read very slowly because it is, and I think part of that is intentional. It's, you know, it's very decompressed, which means the story is, there's a lot happening over a lot of pages. Like it's, or a, what I should really say is there's a very little amount happening over a lot of pages. Uh-huh. So technically it's moving very fast, but you read it, it's almost like going through it in slow motion because it's these big moments conveyed through big panels, very frequently full pages or two page spreads. Um, extremely detailed but I wouldn't call them necessarily busy compositions they're still very clean um, but just very detailed and it is just consistently absolutely jaw-dropping to look at the mobile suits see how they are posed I think Otagaki has a sense of the iconicity of Gundams and mobile suits that I think is near unsurpassed Um, and it is just jaw-dropping every single page of this fucking thing um and i don't think the anime always captures that like i do think as much as i like the overall jazz style there is some moments where i'm like like first i'll give an example um there's an action sequence that comes at the end of bandit flower that is from volume five where uh daryl is trying to get away with the spy and he's in the act guy and the way he gets away is he does this thing where he freezes the bridge and goes up backwards on it that is one of the best action beats in the manga in part because of the all the little finicky things that go into building it up and then the specific images that are chosen when you see it unfold that I think I think that action sequence winds up being a little bit limp in the anime in part because they're intercutting it with another action sequence with yeah. EO and then also because I think when you get to that moment they don't hold on the image that's an image that you should like be doing a freeze frame on or something or doing slow-mo or something to like I think emulate that feeling that the manga is trying to give you there and i think sometimes they miscalibrate in that way but often the anime is getting some of that sense of iconicity um obviously i think all the scenes with the atlas gundam show it off very very well in bandit flower for instance so absolutely there yeah well i think like bandit flower to me has like the issue of like because it is so unstructured in terms of the broad storytelling that like 
I think it just is exhausting. By the time you get to the big, what is like a massively long action sequence, because it's inter two action sequences that have nothing to do with each other that are intercut, it's almost like not even clear if they're meant to be happening at the same time because it feels they're like not. They, yeah, that's I that can was tell you guess. about this. Yeah, that it wasn't meant to be happening at the same time as the manga because they should be happening geographically close enough relative to each other that they should interact in some way. Um, and so the way that that is all intercut takes these sequences that like, if it, and this is one of the reasons why I think in my head, I was like, I just kind of wish this was a TV show. Because I get that if you knew you were eventually going to do this as like a big movie and everything, that you'd want these sequences to be intercut. But like those two should have just been their own episodes um, that kind of stand on their own because that the action sequences themselves are fucking great on their own but they don't work when they're intercut with each other and it kind of saps the strength out of both of them it kind of is disorienting because the style of the action for both of them is very different one of them is eo like very aggressively attacking um all these like ships that are in the air and like jumping from them from one to the other and getting on the the like uh, sky like the core fighter looking thing that uh bianca is piloting and, and navigating that way but the other one is this kind of more tense escape sequence through the jungle of them kind of trying to hide and use the water and all that kind of stuff to run away and those two sequences don't intercut well at all and so you're disoriented by the pace and the style of the two of them um and it's very frustrating because even if i think at the end of the day bandit flower based on the story and all that stuff that is just totally left hanging would always feel rough um it would, I think, still be way more enjoyable if those sequences could just stand on their own and be their own episodes or whatever that are effectively standalone, and you just like enjoy it as a big action set piece. The way that the underwater fight before that, I think, is fucking amazing because it just gets to be a big uninterrupted under action sequence that is really well like executed. Um, and then as Bandit Flower goes on, it really loses that quality of it. Yeah. So can I just give you the skinny on how they adapted, like? Yeah. the bandit flower material because it's fascinating so um december sky is volumes one through three and then bandit flower is volumes four five six seven um and bandit flower and and december sky is a pretty straightforward adaptation just cutting a lot of stuff out and condensing bandit flower does a ton of reorganization and it's kind of fascinating and the main reason they do that is that be this stretch of the manga four through seven only has one extended scene with daryl and that is the big action scene um, where they go to get the spy. And they kind of split that up because when we... So Bandit Flower picks up eight months later. One big thing they skip is that there is a bunch of stuff in volume four with Eo uh, and some of the characters on that side in between sort of these sequences. Um, and particularly Eo's by far biggest moment of characterization is just completely cut from the anime where you go back to side four to more, they are sort of like repopulating that area. Um, and Eo is being given a medal and you see his whole like family and you learn more about sort of the pressures he's is as like one of the elites and Claudia mm -hmm. and his other friend, the engineer are also sort of elites and they have this interesting relationship with the Federation and with sort of their own, like they are kind of despised where they are, where they come from. So all of that gets cut. Volume 4, honestly, most of Volume 4 is excised because Volume 4 also has a lot at Abaoku that they don't do, including explaining, including introducing the Nanyang Alliance and explaining where they got the Psychozaku, which Bandit Flower cuts out, and I think that's weird because it's important information that they mm -hmm. do not adapt. But anyway, Volume 4 is mostly cut, but you do have... You know how in Bandit Flower, the first time you see Daryl again, he's on the beach 
and they're putting the act guys together. Yeah. In the manga, that what they're doing on the beach is getting ready for the mission with the spy, and it follows immediately from that. But because that's Daryl's only big scene, they do that scene on its own, and then they leave to go do something. Then we get back to Daryl in the final two episodes of Bandit Flower, and they do the spy scene there, and they combine it with a scene, the only other scene Daryl has in this stretch, which is when he goes to visit um, scientist engineer lady who has lost her mind. Um, and they have that scene where they're in kind of like the beekeepers area, yeah. um, and they do that. So they move all of that around. But what happens is episode one is a very speedy tour through some of the moments from volume four. Um, but most of that is left unadapted. And then it does EO scenes, which are the introduction of the Atlas Gundam from volume five. So you're doing like t- two volumes of manga in that episode. Episode two, which is the whole thing in Antarctica, that's a very condensed and reorganized version of volume six. It is all of volume six crammed into 20 minutes. Episode 3 starts with Daryl's scene from with Carla from the beginning of Volume 7. Then it does his whole mission to rescue the spy from Volumes 4 and 5 over the course of these last two episodes. Intercut with Eo and Bianca's scenes from Volume 7 leading up to the beginning of their conflict with the Nanyang Alliance. And then realizing Claudia is with them. And all of that continues into the fourth and final episode. So it is a very sort of like all over the place adaptation. Grabbing bits and pieces and reorganizing them. And I see some of the impetus for that. But, like, the strongest part of Bandit Flower by far is the 20 minutes in Antarctica because it's the only time we're focused on one thing. I still have a lot of problems with that sequence because it just... That that volume of the manga is such a fucking tour de force that, like... I remember, uh, for instance, Death Note. uh, The second arc of Death Note is condensed into, like, seven episodes or something. But Mm -hmm. that in the manga is, like, roughly as long as the first arc. So I remember specifically there's one episode of Death Note that adapts one entire volume of the manga in 20 minutes. And it's the most incoherent thing I've ever seen. This is not that bad because it's still mostly kinesthetic and they get to have some of the big moments in there. But there is a definite sense for me of, like, oh, man, they really cut this thing to the bone. But it's still the best thing in Bandit Flower because it's at least focused. I'll Even say that I... having not read the manga, nothing about that sequence in Antarctica feels like it is like cut down or diminished. Like obviously if I okay. had the context, it maybe would feel like that relatively speaking. But for me, that sequence plays like fucking beautifully. Like I think that Antarctic that's good. stuff is some of the best action stuff in Gundam. Okay. That's, and that's totally fair because it is well done. My main thing that I think, I just think there is some, there's definitely some character stuff that gets lost there about like that is sort of a, a volume that really builds up Bianca for us, um, her and EO's relationship. EO, I think, comes across a little like hot-headed and stupid in that episode that is not how it's characterized in the manga. Some of this is just fiddly little adaptation stuff and that's yeah. fine. Like, but I it think is... he's hot-headed, but I don't think I would describe the thing of how he gets the Atlas Gundam as stupid. Like I do think it came across to me as like, this was an extremely desperate fight that, like, he ended up taking a unexpected injury in the legs that meant that he couldn't, uh, like, yeah. get himself back up and he was taking on water. None That's of that fair. really read to me the way I think you kind of described it earlier. Well, then maybe it's doing it better than I... Because I was kind of trying to read it through the lens of, like, if I didn't know the manga, what would I think about this? And what you described is what I get out of the manga, so maybe I'm wrong about that, and that's fine. Um, But yeah, definitely, it is still the best part of Bandit Flower because it's the most focused stretch of adaptation. I think those last two episodes just get super messy because Uh of the intercutting of two sequences that happen at different times. The, like, Daryl's sequence in the manga is our introduction to the Nanyang Alliance as like fighters that is like where we sort of meet them 
And then we go over to EO and uh, the fake white base, whatever it's called, uh, the Spartan. And we have more stuff with them where we learn more about them and more learn more about Levon Fu and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but intercutting it all just, it also means that I don't think we get a great sense of who the enemy is until very yeah. near the end of this movie, which is just awkward um, in a bunch of ways. Yeah, I think part of the thing that it struggles with is that like December Sky is a much more sort of like gets to be because of like the material is adapting a more focused story about two characters right it is about eo and it's daryl and and they get to play off of each other in like the way that the story is told whereas in bandit flower eo and daryl have nothing to do with each other like other than that like they're both kind of finding the same people broadly speaking there's no interplay between the two protagonist characters in any way shape or form has nothing to do with it so it's like trying to impose some amount of interplay by in like cutting between these two sequences that aren't meant to be cut between just makes it even worse because it's like you can't you can't force there to be some sort of like dual protagonist structure in this way that has this kind of interplay between these two characters you're following if the story's not doing that at this point um, it's like it's clearly a much bigger, more open story, and presumably, eventually, the Daryl in EO stuff will intersect again. But the section of the story they're adapting, it doesn't intersect in any way, so you can't try to force it to intersect, or it just is disorienting. Yeah, and the manga is pretty disciplined in this whole stretch of it sticks with a story for a long uh -huh. time until it's time to do something else. So, volumes six and seven are almost entirely EO's side of the story. And then Volume 8 is 100% Daryl until then they meet up again at the very end. Uh, and Volume 8 is unadapted at this point. So, you know, like, it's if you stick with one set of characters for a long time, and that is harder to get away with in an anime movie kind of thing that they're doing yeah. here, right? Um, but I think, yeah, I still think there probably was a more elegant solution than what they come up with, because it does just, those are two, like, the, the whole idea of eo leaping between the different planes looking for claudia trying to get her it's a great action sequence yeah. that is very much distracted by the intercutting with daryl scene that is also theoretically a great action sequence but they're both very diluted yeah well i think because one of the things that's really awkward i could have said this before about like that they're very different kinds of action sequences is that the amount of time that is passing is clearly very different. Like, clearly the thing that's happening with Eo is taking place over a very short amount of time because it's like this very yes. risky, intense thing he's doing. But then when you cut away from that to this more kind of like, we're trying to sneak through and like kind of exfiltrate in this like jungle encounter and we're like getting pushed back bit by bit, that's clearly a much longer engagement. So it's like the, the intercutting between those two is one of the things that's super disorienting about it is like the whole mood of how you're interpreting how much time is passing gets completely fucked up um because it's just you can't intercut those sequences if they're there's no there's no space for them to be intercut with each other yeah and then the ending is problematic as you noted earlier it ends on the beat where we learn that levon fu is a new type and you know in the manga that's the end of one chapter and then that is where it does make the transition back to the daryl story but I will say when it moves back to the Daryl story, that is when we then directly engage with like the significance of him being a new type. That is a piece of info that the audience is supposed to know going into the next phase with Daryl because it starts to come up in how mm -hmm. he encounters the Nanyang Alliance. But in this movie, it's just the end and it's meant to be kind of the beat we end on. And so far, it's the end of Thunderbolt as an anime. And it's just very just flat as like a it just feels like 
we we made 89 minutes of anime and then we stopped you know yeah i mean because the the thing that's really weird about it is i I guess there's kind of two things one is we've already met a new type like daryl's team has a new type on it so like the notion of like there are new types within the scope of what thunderbolt is covering that's already been broached like obviously on the eo side of thing it hasn't happened but for us as the audience like well we've already had stuff with this like other new type character so it's like hard to be like and this guy is a new type to be this like big heavy beat to land on you're like oh my god i can't believe he's a new type i haven't seen that since that guy in the scene five minutes ago that was also a new type and doing new type stuff um like i obviously i get the sense that the main antagonist dude is a much more powerful new type but that's like but that's not that nuanced difference doesn't make for a big kind of like beat drop the way they play in the anime um and the other problem with it is that like we don't know who that guy is so it's like them it it's, feels like the reveal is meant to be that oh he's a new type but we don't know who he is at all so it's like it's not that this character that we didn't realize was a new type actually is doing new type shit which is kind of the way it's written and the way that the like the dialogue is structured um and but it's like but i don't know who this character is this is the first time you've ever said his name why is it significant to me that this guy is a new type um also i've obviously already figured out it's a new type because they're weird like cult people who have all shaved their heads so it's clearly some sort of new typey bullshit going on um so yeah <laughs> like the way it just feels like it's such a manufactured like you know drop at the end of it of like oh my god he's a new type and like yeah so is kind of my reaction to the end of it i don't know why it's supposed to be this incredibly weighty thing um and and that's a big problem because that's like the thing that the entire ending is banking on is for that reveal to be so hefty that it covers up the fact that there isn't an actual conclusion to the story that's been told so far yeah and a couple of points on that so the the character who is a new type on daryl's side ends in billy hickam which is a great name um in the manga, I have to say, I do not remember that plot point, and I am looking at when Billy Hickam is introduced, and it is definitely not there in his introduction. Maybe it is later, and I'm forgetting about it. Even if it is, though, by the time the moment with Levin Fu in the manga you say he's a new type, we have not seen Daryl or Billy Hickam in over two volumes. So, like, mm-hmm. it's much more... It is not, as you say, in the anime, it's five minutes ago we saw Billy Hickam, and they made a joke about it, right? Yeah. In the anime, or in the manga, it would have been several volumes if you're reading it in real time months or years ago right because yeah. it's a monthly manga um and so there is more distance there uh and then also like i said if if he is it's certainly less emphasized in the manga that that is a plot point um there is definitely in the manga there is speculation from some people that daryl is a new type i specifically remember that and that is mostly excised in the in the anime i think there might yeah. be one i line. think there's like a vague implication that comes from billy um but it's not like yeah. But it's certainly not confirmed or anything. Yeah. And so, yeah, some of that is is uh, less emphasized. Also, you do see Levin Fu at other moments before. The, in, the, in the anime, they hold the reveal of his face for that big moment. And there is more with him before that. So there's just a... But there's... Those are some adaptational choices I don't quite understand because... But then again, it feels like this was a very sort of like mercenary decision of this is how much manga is out and that's how much we're covering in this amount of anime we've been ordered to make. And so what in here can we choose to make as our final moment? And I guess that's what you do. 
But what's it's just I think if you were in a freer way of adapting this, I don't think that's where you would end this, and I don't think this stretch is what I would make one movie out of. It's a very weird stretch to do. Yeah. Um, I would do a little bit more and go to the end of volume eight is I think a better place to end it, or I would do a little bit less, and I'm not sure which would be better. But part of this is this is the this is also just a very uniquely structured Gundam. We haven't talked that much about that. Yes, it was an ONA, but it's not like Gundam Bill Divers Rerise is a just normal TV show, 24 and a yes. half minutes with an act break, with an opening and closing that just happened to air first on YouTube. Um, this is like this weird, they're like 10 to 15 to 20 minute episodes. And so they're just very constrained by time in ways that make it an uncomfortable adaptation too, I think. Yeah, and it's just something that I think when the story clearly moved into a much more episodic place after the Thunderbolt Sector stuff where you don't have, like, the directness of the two pilots fighting each other multiple times over the course of the story, like in the Thunderbolt stuff, like, once it moves to be more episodic, I just don't know if the movie format makes sense. Like, if they just had it be structured like one of the old-school OVAs, like a war in the pocket or like you know OHMS team which this is like you know those kinds of OBAs don't really exist anymore generally speaking um but like this ONA thing kind of feels like it, it's like an attempt to get at something like that old business model where instead of you buying a fucking laser disc or a VHS tape you are buying um like this like on demand little piece of like 50 minutes or 20 episodes of animation that gives it because it has that like direct monetization path that gives it the ability to be a more expensive piece of animation than something you just broadcast on TV. Um, but like if it was structured like those old OVAs and it was like, no, this is just an episode telling this section of the story. This is an episode that's the Antarctic scene. This is an episode that's like Daryl and his people in the jungle. This is an episode that's um, EO's crew up in the skies fighting up there. Like each of those sequences, if it was like an uninterrupted sequence that was built as an episode focused on it, would be fucking great. But when you have to try to think of it as, especially at this point where they know they're going to edit it into a movie and show it in theaters before they started working on the project in the first place, it's, it's built effectively as a movie that has been chunked out into 50 to 20 minute pieces that are then being sold separately in the build up to them effectively creating the full movie version of it yeah i think that's definitely true which leads us to the question i mean so the the ona on demand per episode thing clearly didn't catch on that's not how anime is made no, as a big deal right yeah, not a lot yeah. of things have tried it and i think it's been years since i've heard about something trying to do something like this right so if they ever do more thunderbolt they're not going to do it like that it has been five years since bandit flower this effectively is the only unfinished Gundam in a sense of it's a project that feels like it was abandoned. Do you think they're ever going to do more? I hope they do. I would like for them to pick it up again because it's so cool. Um, yeah. But it's hard to know. I'm going to, I'm going to like glance over Ko Matsuo's credits. I'm like, I don't know if he's stuck on something like the Gundam build fighters dude is like stuck in my hero academia right so like he's stuck in that world which is one of the reasons why he ended up not directing more Gundam build fighter stuff but it doesn't look like komatsu is working on like a oh this is a project that he's going to be in for years or something um so i don't know um it doesn't seem like yeah that on like the creator side that that's um would be sort of preventing that from happening so yeah, I have no idea. Like, I, as far as I know, they haven't talked about it. Like, there's been no announcements either confirming that they're not going to do it 
or saying that they are going to do it. Um, but I, I would really want more. And I think it would be cool if they moved it to, like, if they maybe did the thing that they've done with stuff like Origin or Unicorn Gundam or, like, kind of like what Himeso Yaiba did with the Mugen Train thing, where maybe they turn what they have done into a TV anime so that then they could maybe shift it into a more traditional TV anime production um, just to, like, make it so that they can do more because I don't see them doing it as a movie. As you say, the ONA thing doesn't really exist in this way anymore. Um, and so, like, a TV version is the only thing I can even think of as, like, a likely vector for them to continue doing this as a project. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, obviously, these last five years and the years to come have been extraordinarily busy for Gundam. There's been mm -hmm. a lot of other stuff going on, and there's only so much they can make. So I do get that. But, you know, Thunderbolt the manga is a huge hit, and it's, it's yes. a hit in Japan. It's a hit around mm -hmm. the world. It's very successful. Um, it's run for a very long time, obviously. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, the reason why we haven't gotten more since Bandit Flower is because that business model clearly just isn't a thing that works. I mean, there's a reason why these movies have only ever been commercially sold as movies. There's, they've never, like, re-released those episodes on a disc or something like that to go buy or download. You have to, like, go pirate those if you want to see the original episodic versions. Um... So it's it's unclear to me when or if they would do more. I would like them to finish it at some point. There's plenty of manga for them to adapt if they want to start it again right now. And the manga is probably coming to an end pretty soon. But yeah, for now, it is a weird vestigial Gundam that like... I would recommend Gundam fans watch December Sky. And I would say, hold off or go read the manga if you want more. But I wouldn't necessarily go on to Bandit Flower because I think it would mostly frustrate you. Because it is just, there is no other Gundam thing I can recommend that is just unfinished with nothing else in sight. Like Hathaway mm. is part one, but we know they're working on two and three, right? Yeah. And, you know, and I would say, I mean, I, I do think that Bandit Flower is still worth watching, even though knowing it's going to be like a kind of frustrating experience. Like there's enough in it that's like very good, particularly in the first half, that it's still enjoyable, generally speaking. I think on particularly on first viewing where you're not going to be fully aware of the fact that it's yes. like, oh, it just stops. So in the moment, I think the first time I, because I, I remember feeling the first time I watched Bandit Flower in the moment, really enjoying a lot of that stuff a lot more that then on rewatch, like, oh, because I know this is kind of going nowhere. It makes a lot of the flaws and the ways that those sequences are constructed stand out even more to me. But, but yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that like December Sky is the, is for me in terms of animated Thunderbolt, like that is the thing. It feels like it's a complete story. It's got like a beginning, middle, and an end. It tells like a compelling story about these two people, Eo and Daryl, on either side of this conflict. Um, great music, great animation. It's not flawless, certainly. You know, I don't think it's, to me, like we're doing like our rankings or whatever. It's not going to be in like the top, top tier of Gundam um, in terms of animated stuff. But, but it is also like safely, comfortably in the kind of mid, upper mid kind of tier to me. Um, whereas Bandit Flower would like sinks that a little bit yeah i've i'll just say on my tier list which i haven't put out publicly yet but probably is up by the time this comes out i've got this in a tier with narrative gundam build fighters try yeah. ms igloo 2 ones that like i like and i think there's a lot that is in there but don't 100 percent come together for me is kind of where i put this yeah i would agree with that broadly speaking other than think build fighters try is too high if it's I, well i like it more than you do so <laughs> yes that's, but yeah. that has nothing to do with thunderbolt but yeah, yeah, like I think Narrative Gundam honestly is probably a pretty good comparison yes. point for me with Bandit Flower. Like everything about the production of it is fucking gorgeous. 
Um, the soundtrack is great. The animation is great. There's some amazing action sequences. But as a story, it's uh, it's too limp um, to really kind of get behind. Well, that's Thunderbolt Gundam for now. Should yes. we shift over and talk about the other thing we have today? Yes, let's talk about the other uh, ONA uh, that was also made. And again, this was eventually released alongside Bandit Flower in some special screenings. And that is Mobile Suit Gundam Twilight Axis. Um, and then specifically, we are talking about like the movie version of it. Because this was released originally as like three-minute chunks episodes. With the last episode being um, six, minute long, six minutes long. And then eventually it was edited into a 26-minute um, sort of short film or whatever you'd want to call it, called Mobile Suit Gundam Twilight Axis Red Trace. It's an interesting little thing. I It sounds like to me I actually do like it more than you, Sean. Um, what's funny is we did watch this for the podcast for the Unicorn Gundam episode when did we you? were new to Weekly Suit... That at all. No, we did, because that's I'd seen this before. And it was for that because the Unicorn Gundam episode, which I think at some point we might need to redo in some form, because we were new to Weekly Suit Gundam, we didn't know the format completely. So we did it a little out of order, and we did all of Unicorn Gundam and narrative, and we were planning on doing Twilight Axis all in one episode. We just forgot to talk about Twilight Axis on that episode. So people have actually been asking it, me about it for years, Sean, because we said we were at wow. some point, and we never did. Um, I have no memory of that at <laughs> all literally that is yes. amazing i have that has gone completely out of my head i mean i remembered you know that we definitely bit off more than we could chew with the unicorn thing and that it was because again that was like in the aftermath of the jonathan gundam craze where it was like how the fuck do we do jonathan watched all this stuff already yeah that was in the wake of you finding me in a gutter outside your house with gundam dvds all around me foaming at the mouth yeah, um, I, like, my gundam you on the face like jonathan jonathan wake up get a hold of yourself man we got podcasts to do. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it was in the midst of my Gundam overdose. So yes, we did a lot of stuff very fast. But no, that is where I had seen Twilight Access before. Uh, and I saw it again here. I liked it more the second time. It is, you used the word vestigial. That is a good word for it. It is very fragmentary, quick, and impressionistic. But I will say, I think it is trying something fairly unique for Gundam in that it is this short film that is telling this very sort of like character emotion-based story in, I used this word before, but I'll use it again because it's the right word for this. It is a very impressionistic fashion. It is very out of order and it is very, it's almost like French New Wave Gundam to me in a weird way in that it is doing sure. this very like emotionally driven version of a story, not driven by linear plot, but more by like memory and impression. Um, I think it has an absolutely beautiful score. I think it's got really stunning music, um, which I did find this, the soundtrack is actually on just on Apple Music and Spotify, so you can go listen to it if you want. But it's by a composer named Takashi Omama. Um, I think it's got pretty interesting animation. I don't think it's a great thing. I actually put it for my tier list in the same tier that I just said I put Thunderbolt and some of those in. Um, it's hard to rank because it is 26 minutes, which is the shortest Gundam thing we've ever talked about. Um, but I kind of like it. Yeah, I like. I think I want. I really want to read the novels. Is kind of how yeah. I come out of Twilight. That's how I felt the last time I watched it. Also, um, is give us like, the skinny then. Tell us what it is, yeah. like because I think people should know. Yeah. So, so Twilight Access is kind of a weird thing because 
while while the novels are the main version of the story that started coming out first, it originally was sort of like conceptualized as a multimedia kind of project. So it's kind of created uh, by a mangaka named Arc Performance. Like that's obviously not his birth name. Um, that is Arc Performance's uh, nom de plume. Um, or or maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe there's a Japanese couple that had a little baby that said <laughs> we're going to name you Arc Performance. Um, that would be funny. Uh, but Art Performance is a mangaka uh, who's worked on some stuff, and he approached Sunrise and had an idea, and he wanted to work with on some Gundam stuff, um, and kind of, it, it's almost like the 2001 A Space Odyssey thing, where um, it started as like, a, we're going to, we kind of came up with a story idea, and then two different teams went off and developed that story idea into two different things. Um, there is also a manga, but the manga was made after the fact, adapting the light novel version. Um, but so they went off, and the the ONA went into some form of pre-production directed by Seijun Kim, um, who uh, has, is an animator that's worked on a bunch of stuff at Sunrise. Like he worked on like Unicorn Gundam and stuff. I believe this is the first thing he has ever directed. Um, he also wrote the adaptation. Um, and then Arc Performance went off to go work, work with the writer Kojido Nakamura to go do the light novel version. Um, the light novel started coming out in November 2016. Uh, and finished in the, on 28th December 2017, so right before 2018. And the original animations aired in small chunks between June 2017 and September 2017, when they then got turned into a movie that aired November 2017, right? So it's like a very tight time frame with between 2016 and 17 that all this stuff came out. But technically, like the, the ONA finished and is telling the same scope of story that the light novels are telling. And it's three volumes of light novels, which is about 600 pages of a, a book. Um, so it's the same broad scope of story, but obviously the light novel version is going to be substantially more detailed. I haven't read it, but like, you know, I know enough about it that it goes into depth about the character that pilots the Tristan Gundam, which is the, the Gundam pilot who's the kind of the antagonist, but he has his whole story and is like a perspective character. He has a fucking brother and all that kind of stuff. So it's like a much, 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 much more fleshed out version of the general story of these characters that our protagonist was a genius girl who designed mobile suits for Char. Um, and in the wake of both Char's counterattack and Unicorn Gundam, this does take place after Unicorn Gundam, my understanding is the light novel version references specific events from Unicorn Gundam and the ending of that series and also has references to things that start happening in F91. So it is like intentionally set in that period between Unicorn and F91. You don't get that as much in the, the anime version. Um, but anyways, after Shars counterattack of the events of Unicorn Gundam, she and another crew and a crew of other people once associated with Xeon, including this test pilot guy who's kind of her surrogate father, go up to access to recover um, the Sazabi mobile suit and some of the stuff that's on Axis. Um, and when they're there, they encounter these... Um, I don't think he's technically Federation. I'm pretty sure uh, Quentin is the name of the, the Gundam pilot. Is He's like a scavenger or something um, that is there to, to salvage materials. And, and a fight breaks out. So that's like the broad plot, and that is kind of the germ of the story. Um, and again, these kind of two projects kind of went in different directions to flesh out that story. I think my issue with twilight axis i think like there's two things of just like the story is very very thin like it's clear that there's a lot of stuff they know about like characters and their backstories that just don't have any of the space to be explored and then i also find at times the animation to be so cheaply produced as to be extremely distracting like there are long sequences where the camera is doing 
everything it possibly can to not show people's mouths in a way that doesn't feel stylistic. It feels like a way to save budget because you can just have still frames of people. Um, and because if you show someone's mouth, you can't get around animating them if they're talking. Whereas if you show them their back or like the their forehead uh, in some of like the weird framing that this uh, sometimes uses, you can have them speak just through the voice actors without actually having to animate anything on the image. And it's like a very constant thing throughout Twilight Access that I think some of it, it gets away with by trying to push it stylistically in this kind of, um, you know, kind of almost dreamlike space with the way that the timeline is intercut together. I think it gets away with some of that um, as a stylistic element, but I don't think it gets away from enough of it for me to kind of avoid it from being a very like distractingly told story. I understand all of that. It, I think some of that worked better for me. Like it's, it's at least trying to put an artistic spin on it. It isn't like the. Uh, have you ever seen Star Trek the animated series where it's so cheap? What they'll often do is they'll have like Kirk or Spock put a hand in front of their mouth before uh -huh. they talk, so that they don't have to animate their lips. They never do anything that bad in Twilight Access. Um, but I do understand what you're talking about. I did not cognizantly get that as much, um, but I do understand where you're coming from on that. You know, I, I still think within that, though, I think there's some very striking framing in certain moments. I think there's some images that it creates, particularly in the final episode um, with some of the stuff that happens at the end that is very memorable. It's, you know, I it's hard to have a lot to say about it. There's a reason why this is not one we're doing an entire episode on, because yes. that would be impossible. I'll just say that, like, I... I kind of had a vague memory of this being forgettable, and I was a little surprised when I went back to it that I think, you know, some of this is a purely thing of necessity of, oh god, we got three books in 26 minutes, let's see what we can do. And some of it is I think it has an interesting artistic vision on how to present this character who is sort of living in trauma from now being in a calm period after a whole bunch of turmoil that has lasted her entire life and those scars come out in different non-linear ways leading up to this ending that is this very ambiguous sort of Char's counterattack-esque new type flash that is sort of left unresolved for us um and I think the way it is propelled along in this very you know there is a Tristan und Isolde uh mm -hmm. sort of inspiration to the book I don't know how much of that really comes across in the anime other than that the music is Wagnerian um uh -huh. and it has this sort of operatic tone to it and I think all of that is just it's unique it's it's it is somewhat emotional for me I do it's I, I'm not gonna say I like broke down crying at the end of this I didn't have that kind of connection to it but I felt moved I felt like interested by it um and it, it left a little bit of a mark I think it's an interesting little thing I I would not call it essential uh and I do realize it's kind of funny I am basically making the counter argument I made from Thunderbolt where Thunderbolt I was just being a little annoyed that it kind of paled in comparison to the manga and I am 100% sure if I had read the light novels this would probably annoy me but having not read the light novels um I find it kind of an interesting little short film yeah and what's interesting is I think like what you're expressing is more what I remember feeling the first time I watched it like I definitely liked it more the first time I watched it and I was kind of excited to watch it again because I'm like I wonder if I'm going to like it even more this time. Because I remember feeling like, ah, it's definitely very flawed, but there's something here. And rewatching, I'm like, I mean, there is kind of something there. Like, I don't think it's, it's not terrible. Like, there's definitely a way worse version of this. I mean, obviously, conceptually, it is like an insane thing to try to do. Um, it is, 
like way too there's too much complicated elements to like the story that's trying to be told for it to be like alighted in the way it's being alighted to do the like um very kind of like broadly speaking experimental like either non-continuity construction of the story um and i th and i like the way the timeline jumps around and some of that stuff in in what it does there but i think there's too much that is meant to be going on especially with the like gundam pilot character that is like so just kind of exists uh that it, it i i just it feels like there's too there are too many holes in it for me to kind of like overlook and kind of get into the flow of it and so i, I felt very cold watching it this time um that yeah i think that's that's like kind of like my general reaction upon this watch is just kind of feeling left cold by it and seeing some interesting choices made in some places and also just too many compromises based on the very nature of the project itself for it to kind of like um reach much above that for me here's a question that was on my mind while i was watching this and i kind of wanted to get your thoughts on uh -huh. do you think we never see char's face and never hear his voice because of a like genuine artistic decision that he only exists in that memory as a uniform or because they couldn't get Shuichi Ikeda? I think both. Like, I think it's probably okay. like, I, I, I think like, I think if it was a thing that they could have done and, and if like, and if there were, I think his part of it is also, there's no space for it here, right? Like yeah. if it was a longer thing, I think they maybe would have wanted to do that um, with it being so short it's like well even if you could get him and he maybe wouldn't have been particularly interested in it you know we have seen other little tiny projects like the battle log episode where shuji kata wasn't there for reasons unknown to us um that like you know I, I suspect they wouldn't have been able to get him but either way there's no room for char to exist in here he, he would just suck the entire air out of the rest of everything else because Char is way too big of a character. The only way he can exist is in broad implication, um, kind of the same with with Lala as this sort of ghost. Um, that but it does everything. But it does like kind of wind up having this quality of, it's like the Poochie episode of The Simpsons where uh -huh. Homer gets cast as Poochie and he says, and you know he's giving all his things he wants about Poochie. He says, and one more thing, everyone should be talking about Poochie whenever he's not in the room. Where's Poochie? What happened to Poochie? They should say. We all want to know about Poochie, and it does kind of feel they are so frequently saying the captain Taisa in Japanese uh -huh. that it is a little bit like he's Poochie, and they just want us to think about Char while he's off screen. And at that point, it would maybe be less distracting if you had like half the number of uses of the word the captain and one like weird line from Shuichi Keita somewhere in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. It should have been like the one Amuro line in Hathaway. in Hathaway's flash. Yeah. yeah. Like something like that maybe would have worked um, well. Cause it's just enough so that you get the char there, but not enough that it, he just sort of like eats up all the like energy of everything and just sort yeah. of like it becomes the focus of the whole thing. Cause I do think one thing that is a little bit distracting to me and I, and I suspect that this is probably like, maybe even a bigger problem in the when the light novels like I'm, i don't know for sure but there is a certain fanfic quality to some of it right of like yeah here's like the genius little girl who nobody ever talked about in the other stories that apparently she's the engineer of a bunch of his mobile suits and she made the sazabi um and it's like that's like and and her like looking on at his relationship with lala soon and all that it's like it's very very like self-insert fan fiction character kind of like narrative setup um, and either the light novel maybe like leans really hard into that and it's even worse there 
or the light novel gets to develop her more as a character beyond that like premise that then makes that less notice noticeable but either way like there is a certain element of me like watching it i'm like it's hard not to see this as some sort of like self-insert character because of the way they're positioned to tour like around like the really iconic elements of Shar as a character and the usage of like the Sazabi as this like big kind of like symbol of Shar, which is awesome. And I love the shot of like the Sazabi like with the ball cockpit that's been ripped out right from all the stuff that happened in Shar's counterattack and it on the surface of Axis, I think is like a really great image. But it also contributes to the fanfic quality of some of the story that's being told, I think. Yeah, I feel like in a longer version of this, there would be ways to use that in, like, I think a critically engaged, interesting way. Um, but again, I haven't read the light novel, so I don't know if it does that. And I can also just as easily see the, as you say, Sean, the kind of excessive fanfic quality of it. So... It's unclear. I will say, if they ever wanted to make the like 90 minute movie version of this or two hours that could more fulsomely adapt the story, I'd be into yes. I'd be interested in it. I don't know if it's the first thing on the priority list I would have Sunrise do, but if they did it, I'd watch it and I'd be curious about it. Yeah, no, like I'm, I'm with you on that, that I would love to see a more full version of the story. Or again, like I might just at some point read the light novels because um, I, I have a book walker account now. I've been checking out some light novel stuff. Um, so that might be something to put on my list to look at because that shit is super cheap. <laughs> it's it's nice. like yes. three or four dollars for a volume. Um, light novels, they're light because they're light on their on your wallet. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, at least that's that's how what I care about them for. <laughs> Indeed. Well, is there anything else to? Oh, one other thing about Twilight Access, it does have two songs that I had to quickly go throw on our song list. Overall, uh, oh, right, it did yes. extend extend my uh, Gundam theme song playlist a little bit. You have an insert song called Let Go and an end theme called Confession. I like that end theme. Confession is very good. It's not going to be on like my top 10 because there's like 200 of these fucking songs, but I did like it. I think it's a good song. Yeah, I, I like it, although I, I cannot, I, I can't remember what it sounds like right now talking about it, but I remember. Here's my confession. Da, 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 da. It's like Okay, that. there. Okay, yes. The, the, at first I was like, this doesn't sound like anything I've heard. And then you said, da, 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 da. I'm like, okay, yeah, okay. That sounds like yeah. a song. Um, well, there you go. Yeah. I'm a I'm a musical genius. There you go. <laughs> Clearly, I'll say the, the one here's like a good thing I like about Twilight Access, and one of the reasons why I want to read the light novels is I do think that Danton is a cool character, the test pilot yeah. dude. Like I think that because that's the the character concept that really works of the test pilot that doesn't want to he can't bring himself to kill someone even though he's a really skilled pilot. Like that's a great character uh, like concept and, and like that stuff to me works fairly well even in the incredibly abbreviated version it exists and that's obviously the heart of the story of this is is his relationship with the main character um yes so i do i do like danton generally speaking even if again it's he exists very kind of vaguely in the story uh i guess because of how how brief it has to be yep well, there you go, Sean. Minus a couple of small to the point of not worth noticing things or a couple of movie compilations we didn't talk about, we've done all the Gundam. Yes, yeah. We're we're finally here. Uh it's, you know, it's it it feels weird. I mean, it felt more momentous after Rerise because that was the thing that like we hadn't watched before. This is like kind of us like crossing our T's. Uh, dotting our eyes to 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 make sure we're getting everything in here for their actual episodes, but yeah, you know we're on the the eve of like 
the the completion of the whatever you know this version or the the original project of weekly suit gundam like we're we're here right up to our third anniversary i'm very impressed that we got the timing so nice here that we're so yes. close to the third anniversary <laughs> when we've reached this point which is exactly what i think we both wanted because it would be weird to have like ah shit we've got the build diver shows left over or something and we just did the third anniversary um and having to wait uh, forever to try to do an anniversary episode to just move it up or something Yep, and it's kind of funny. We're at fifty-three episodes. With the end, we're going to do a couple for the third anniversary, bring us to around fifty-five. I always imagined it would take about fifty to get where we are, so we're coming in pretty close to that. Uh, and yes, the next episode of Weekly Suit Gundam will be on June tenth. That is our third anniversary, uh, and we are going to be doing multiple anniversary episodes this year because we have a lot we want to rank. We have been. Building up to this, Sean, I know you wanted us to do all the same rankings they did for the 40th anniversary yes. in Japan. And we might do a couple extras as well. But for part one of our anniversary celebration, we will be doing, at the very least, ranking all the fucking shows. And then maybe in a part two, we do everything else. But I think we might need one full episode for the rankings of shows, because now we have all the shows. Yes, we have all of it. And, and so now... Not only do we get to talk about all the things we haven't ranked yet, but now we can like talk about everything in the full context. Like we are, we are at you know where I was like five years ago before they made a bunch of new Gundam and we started doing the podcast. I was like, I've it's all there. I've done it all. I've seen it all. Um, I can see time itself. And now we are both there with even more Gundam than I had watched in five or six years ago. Um, so you know, I think finally, Jonathan. Next time on Weekly Suit Gundam, we might be able to see the tears of time. Kimi